The interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma Energy Solutions provides a unique financing model for CNI and utility scale battery storage systems. Prisma's customized lease options help you reduce energy demand, participate in both energy and ancillary service markets, improve renewables integration, increase system reliability, and reduce your carbon footprint. There's no design or technology risks, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront capital expense is greatly reduced, especially compared to a system purchase. So go over and visit prismaenergy.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is a global leader in flexible power plants, energy storage, and complete life cycle solutions. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% renewable energy. The Atlas is this open access tool based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide to illustrate the cost optimal 100% renewable energy system. Find out more at vertzilla.com atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A.com atlas. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, the new wave of carbon offsets. Right up until the global economy stopped working in March, the carbon offset market was surging. Flight-shamed consumers were demanding them. The world's top companies were buying them in record numbers. In 2019, offset sellers saw a five-fold increase in purchases after years of low demand in the wake of the financial crisis. That is, until the economic shock from coronavirus. The steep drop we're now seeing in fuel and electricity consumption has slowed consumer demand for carbon offsets in the short term, but uh, there are still many unknowns, and there are still a lot of underlying trends in the corporate world that may herald the return of carbon offsets. So will this boom be different from the first boom? Shail Khan is going to help me answer that question. He's my co-host. He's the Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. You're a self-proclaimed carbon markets obsessive, yes? I Yeah, and have been proudly for, what, a dozen years or more? Now more, actually. Is that how you introduce yourself at parties? Mm-hmm. Wait, you're assuming I get invited to parties? <laughs> Nobody does a- anymore. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it, it feels remarkably similar for me to pre-COVID world, but I guess <laughs> for other people. <laughs> how did you get into carbon markets in the first place? I became obsessed with carbon markets in college, actually. Right as I was toward the end of college was when I sort of discovered this whole like climate change and energy world and was starting to get deep into it in a few different areas. And this is, I mean, we should talk about the history of these markets, but this is right as the sort of first wave of voluntary carbon markets were starting to pick up. And I don't know, there was something inherently appealing to me about it. I liked that there is a market and that it creates a commodity that is tradable and fungible and can allocate the you know, need um, and the demand to, in theory, the most efficient actors, those who, you know, the demand to those who need to offset emissions and the um, supply to those who have emissions that can be offset. So, you know, coming from my idealistic young brain, I thought, boy, this is, this is not the solution to climate change, but it clearly should be a part of it. And so I uh, spent a lot of time sort of right toward the tail end of finishing college. And then as we'll talk about for a couple of years afterwards, just deeply immersed in the world of carbon markets. What a dead end that turned out to be, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's not like I got to spend an hour talking about it on a podcast 13 years later and that was what <laughs> made it totally worth it. So we're going to be talking about this new wave of carbon offsets that we're seeing, a lot of which are being purchased by um, big companies. And we'll talk about some of the startups operating in this space that are sourcing carbon reductions from new places and who's buying those offsets and if they're making an impact. Let's first talk about the market itself and the initial burst of activity that we saw in the 2006 timeframe. So for the purposes of this conversation, we are talking about voluntary carbon markets, not carbon markets that are created through government policy or through the United Nations. Talk about the differences between those two markets first. Right. So it's important to note at the start that there are fundamentally two different kinds of carbon markets. There are voluntary carbon markets, which is what we're going to be describing for the most part today, and then there are compliance carbon markets. So compliance carbon markets are those that are created through legislation through, for example, cap and trade programs, right? What they do is set up a market that is legislated into existence and requires companies and sometimes government entities and other actors to hit a certain carbon threshold and perhaps to trade credits as a result. Um, those markets, for example, in the United States, you know, the sort of primary one historically was called REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is a carbon market in the Northeast. The EU had a much more and has a much more robust one called the EU ETS. There are a bunch of other compliance markets. We're going to set those aside, I think, for the moment. Well, and many of those were established in the wake of the Kyoto Protocol That's right. as well. Yeah, it was, there was an international framework that set up those markets. Yeah, exactly. But let's set those aside. There's this separate bucket of voluntary markets, which is exactly as it is described, which is just either individuals or corporates or governments, any entity who decides to purchase and retire carbon credits, which we'll talk about what that actually means, but purchase and retire carbon credits either just out of the good of their heart or to specifically offset some action that they are taking that causes greenhouse gas emissions. So when this boom started in 2006, you simultaneously had companies that were buying credits for renewable energy generation, and you also had a lot of companies and people buying carbon offsets. And basically, it's an accounting tool. It's a promise from someone else to say, I will keep this carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere similar to renewable energy credits. It's it's the environmental value of the renewable electricity that has been generated. You can buy and sell that and use that for accounting purposes to say that you are 100% renewable energy powered or carbon neutral. I actually think that that's exactly one of the problems in the first wave that is no longer true today, which is the first wave. So, okay, quick bit of history. Like you said, this the voluntary carbon markets really started to take off around 2006. And there's some good data on the size of these markets from uh, Ecosystem Marketplace puts out an annual state of the voluntary carbon markets report. So I'll just give you some numbers to start. So in 2006, the total traded volume um, in voluntary carbon markets that was tracked by these guys is, was $111 million. By 2008, it was up to $790 million. And that was the peak. Right. So coincided with the financial crisis, where just ahead of the financial crisis, this market is taking off. It grew almost eightfold in two years. Then it crashed and it has never recovered. So from the peak of $790 million in 2008, it was basically a steady decline downward for the next decade. 
down to at a low of like $150 million or so in 2017. And then as you said at the beginning, it has started to recover since there, but it's never gotten back to the highs of, of 2008. Um, I'm actually still, I'm astonished at how small this market is. I mean, at its peak, it's less than a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, again, this is just the voluntary market. Yeah. Right. Compliance markets are bigger historically. And the, uh, the TAM, the potential market opportunity for voluntary is, I mean, basically limitless. Um, but it was really just starting to mature when it crashed. So I think it never got a chance to really hit its stride. So, okay, let's talk about why the carbon market, that first wave of activity crashed. Our listeners are probably fairly familiar with carbon markets, but let's revisit that piece of history. What happened in 2008? Obviously, the financial crisis played a major role, but then the drop in demand continued. So what was going on there? I think three fundamental things caused this market to crash. The first one is the financial crisis. Like you said, I mean, this was the timing just couldn't have been worse um, for a new market to emerge and a new market specifically that was voluntary, right? And so when, you know, corporations no longer had extra money to spend and individuals no longer felt like their, their pocketbooks were fat, then that obviously hurt the market. Though, as you said, you would have thought it would have recovered if that were the only reason. Second reason was, I do think there was an expectation at that time, and certainly when I was working in this market. So after I graduated from college, I spent a couple of years actually originating and trading in the carbon markets. Um, this is way back. This is right around that time, pre-financial crisis. And you know, a lot of the actors in that market, I think, were banking on or at least expecting federal legislation in the United States, at least, to come in that would then create compliance markets. And so there was some, I think, anticipatory buying in these markets ahead of likely compliance markets arriving. Of course, those compliance markets, at least the federal level in the United States, never did arrive. But the third, and I think most important thing that caused the market to collapse and never recover was um, disillusionment and lack of trust. And you know, I know you have opinions on this, and you've talked about this before on on the Energy Gang. Like there has been, there have been a lot of bad actors and a lot of bad quality in the carbon offset world historically, and I think that has set it back substantially because there generally has just been a lack of trust in what are you actually buying when you buy one of these credits. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the market has been filled with credits that are difficult to track. They're based on bad baseline measurement. There are a lot of concerns about landowners or countries inflating deforestation estimates just to generate more credits. Um, there's a lot of leakage. So, you know, a landowner could protect one forest for the sake of carbon credits, but then the um, the deforestation activity goes somewhere else. And you, it's, that's really difficult to track. Um, trees have to be, you know, if you're planting new trees, they have to be in the ground and growing for um, a long time to strip meaningful amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so you need to be sure that those deforestation or those tree planting efforts are actually like going to last for a long time. And numerous international bodies have been tracking this market, both the compliance market and the voluntary market, and have found that um, credits related to deforestation in particular have had a real low impact on carbon emissions. So a report from the UN found 
that uh, trees planted today can't grow fast enough to achieve the two degree Celsius temperature stabilization mark that we're all shooting for. A report in 2016 from Norway found that 85% of offsets had a low likelihood of creating real impacts. And a ProPublica analysis last fall looked at satellite data of forests that had been supposedly protected under carbon markets. And uh, in theory, 88% of the land that they surveyed was supposed to be forested, and they found that only 46% was forested. So that's a real problem, and that has caused a a lot of skepticism about carbon markets. Right. So I want to come back around in a little bit to all those problems that you described, because I will just put my cards on the table here, having spent a bunch of time with some of the companies that are pursuing this new wave right now, I'm actually pretty optimistic that um, that we've solved a lot of those problems with technology, largely. Uh, but we can get to that later. So, you know, just finishing out the history so that I think that 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 wave, you know, the combination of all these other things, plus this steady drumbeat of analyses suggesting that the offsets that people were purchasing a decade ago were not real, or at least were not sustained, was enough to effectively put this market into hibernation. Uh, But it is coming back. Okay. So that's why we're having this conversation now. How is it coming back? You've been tracking a lot of startups that are sourcing emissions reductions. So what are you finding? Right. So let me give you four different categories of companies who are playing a role, I think, in this resurgence. The first is consumer brands, companies that are offering us as consumers a way to measure, reduce, and in some cases offset our own personal emissions. We've talked before about the extent to which we think consumers actually care about this stuff, but there's a new wave that um, is enabling all of us to take advantage of the, the new offset market if we'd like. Um, two examples of this in the startup world would be Ren, formerly Project Ren, Ren like the bird. Um, they're, you know, a sort of offset as a service subscription type of product. And, you know, they're they're known in the venture capital world right now because back when we had this very brief, um, very hypey bubble around climate tech, uh, Union Square Ventures, which is a you know venerated Silicon Valley uh, or actually New York-based investment firm, uh, made its first two quote-unquote climate tech investments, and Ren was one of them. The second one that I would mention is a company called Joro, um, which basically asks you to link your information, particularly if you're willing, your bank account information into their platform, and they automatically calculate your personal carbon emissions as a result, and then you can offset them through the platform as well. So there's others, but those are a couple examples on the consumer side. The second would be a whole host of new companies that are trying to originate and mint carbon offsets and sometimes create a market for those carbon offsets in a way that leverages technology to do it better than how it was done the first time. So the first is a company called Pachama, which is a startup that is focused on the forestry offset world, um, specifically those types of projects, avoided deforestation or reforestation that you were talking about, Stephen, that had a lot of problems in the first time. Um, But they're using 
uh, geospatial data and sort of machine learning to verify and monitor all the projects that they originate. So that means specifically they're taking satellite data, they're taking drone data uh, and drone imagery, um, and they're actually measuring on an ongoing basis how much CO2 is avoided by those projects and then continuing to monitor them to ensure that they are permanent, which you know was one of the problems that you described. There's another company called Nori that is doing something similar but focused on agriculture emissions. Um, so there's a bunch of others as well, right? So there's the new wave of like carbon credit originators and minters who are leveraging technology to make sure that these projects are real. Then on the demand side of the equation, there are some companies that are starting to offer offsets at, for example, point of sale. So Shopify just announced that they're doing this in part through, um, credits that were minted by Pachama, at least to start. So Shopify now, if you are a Shopify vendor, if you're selling something on the Shopify platform, um, you can sign up for this. They have a whole process described on their website where you can offer offsets at point of sale. So when somebody goes online and purchases something through a Shopify vendor, there can be a little point at checkout where you can say offset the emissions associated with the shipping of this product. Shopify estimates the emissions associated with the shipping and procures on your behalf via Pachama carbon credits to offset those emissions. And then the final category I would say are companies who are voluntarily making commitments on their own behalf to offset their emissions and sometimes to go further than that. And what's what's new is some of these companies are focused on carbon removal, so sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. So Microsoft was the big announcement a, a couple months ago saying that they will be carbon negative by 2030. The way that they become carbon negative is by purchasing credits effectively, or the way that they would put it, funding projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere. Stripe just made a huge announcement on their, you know, they had made a, a negative emissions commitment of spending a million dollars on negative emissions, I think a year ago. They just this week announced the first four projects that they are funding under that commitment, which is a combination of like direct air capture, literally sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and things that put carbon to beneficial use, um, like Carbon Cure, which is basically using CO2 to reduce the emissions embedded in concrete and cement. So all this stuff is sort of floating around simultaneously, and that's what makes me feel like there's some meaningful resurgence in this market. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the numbers back that up. All this activity means that the market has been growing in the voluntary market, hit almost $300 million in 2018 into 2019. Who knows what's going to happen, particularly with consumer offsets uh, in the wake of the COVID crisis, but this is definitely amounting to something. There are a few things to unpack there. One is the consumer interface companies like the Ren and Joro. I mean, are they solving a challenge for consumers? If there is this disillusionment, if people like me don't want to buy carbon offsets because I don't believe that they're working, do you think that these companies offer something new and meaningful that will convince consumers that they're buying something that has an impact? Good question. I mean, that's what we'll find out to see whether they're successful or not. I think w the ways that they are trying to approach it are, first of all, Though you are disillusioned, um, my guess is that most people, you know, never really heard about carbon offsets in the first wave anyway. <laughs> so like they don't know enough to be disillusioned yet. But I do think there's some natural skepticism. Are you saying we're not representative of yeah. the, the broader consumer? <laughs> Certainly not. But, you know, I, I, even if they don't already feel that way, I think there's probably some some fairly 
reasonable natural skepticism about the idea of offsets. So one thing that all these companies, the, the new wave of companies are doing is they're being really diligent about explaining exactly how they are sourcing these offsets, why these ones are quality, how they meet all the standards that you would want to meet and so on. So they're trying to give you, they're trying to build trust, which is I think if this market is going to regain steam, whether at the consumer level or at the corporate level, trust is the thing that is needed to be built. And so a lot of these new trust and transparency, I guess I would say a lot of these new efforts are being built around lots of transparency and in the hopes of building trust. And if they can, then I don't know. I mean, consumers, there's clearly concern about climate change. There's clearly concern broadly about our own personal contribution to it. And there's ways in which we can reduce our own personal emissions footprint, but there are limits to that within reason. And so what are you going to do for the rest of it? Is there not a significant subset of the population who would, if they could, balance out their their own personal emissions via carbon credits? Speaking of transparency, you're a venture capitalist. Do you have any financial stake in any of these companies? I do not. Um, we have not invested in any of these new offset companies, though you know I think there's a possibility we could in the future. And certainly I've spoken to every company that I've mentioned here, but we don't have any financial stake yet. So why would you potentially invest? I mean, what is attractive to you about this market? What questions are you asking that might draw you in? Well, I mean, first of all, just putting on the like climate solutions hat, I think there's a fairly um, broad swath of industries that need to be decarbonized that are not economic to decarbonize today. And so this creates a mechanism to make those economic, right? Like certainly anything like direct air capture and carbon capture, it's absolutely true. The forestry-based solutions, like, you know, in the absence of this, it's going to be much slower. So setting aside my like financial investor hat, I actually think it could be an important piece of the puzzle for decarbonization. With an investor hat on, um, you know, people say that like the the factors you need to consider from a venture capital standpoint, fundamentally for any given investment are some combination of team, tech, TAM, total addressable market, and timing. Um, so applying that lens here, you know, team, first of all, uh, there's a lot of really impressive technology talent that is being brought to bear in these companies. Uh, it's, it's you know, traditional Silicon Valley type folks a lot of the time who are applying their skill set to this arena. Um, so a lot of them have really impressive teams. Then tech, this is what is different this time from last time, right? Whether you are Pachama and you're applying you know, satellite imagery and machine learning to verify those emissions to build trust, or whether you are Nori, which, for example, is trying to to ensure a lack of double counting, which has been one of the other issues historically by putting this stuff on the blockchain. Um, so, you know, tech is a second opportunity to do it different. TAM, total addressable market, is a big open question, right? In theory, huge total addressable market. Uh, whether you're talking about the consumer side or the the corporate side, it sort of requires you to take a leap of faith on that that enough people or corporates will care that the market will actually be large. But the theoretical TAM is very attractive. And then finally, timing, which is you know perhaps the most important one, which is you know I guess COVID aside, I think there has been a growing interest, particularly among corporates, and you could make the argument amongst individuals as well, to 
take serious action to mitigate climate change and to do so in a way that is robust and transparent and additional. Um, so, you know, I think that if, for me anyway, it is, uh, it's not all that hard to paint a picture where one, a few of these businesses can build the, the sort of winning trusted brand in this burgeoning market and ultimately be pretty successful as a result. Tech team timing, Tam, you practiced that one, didn't you? I mean, I won't pretend to have come up with that myself, but <laughs> it applies. I'm really interested in what the big corporates are doing in terms of sourcing these credits. So Microsoft announced at the beginning of the year they're going to be carbon negative by 2030. That will include um, deforestation and reforestation credits, but it's also going to include technology investments in things like direct air capture. You talked about Stripe as well, which is going to invest uh, at least a million dollars a year into new types of carbon offsets. Again, some will be forestry related, but a lot of them may be experimental. And they said that they would pay any price per ton of CO2 reduced just to get new solutions out in the market. And again, some of those could be technological solutions like direct air capture. Interestingly, I think within this last month, we saw Amazon invest many, many millions of dollars into carbon offsets as well. And they're going to support deforestation uh, prevention efforts around the U.S., some of them are in the Northeast, which I don't understand because like the Northeast has such a culture of conservation. I don't know how any additional carbon market would matter for landowners around that area. I mean, I know I know that area very well, and I it just doesn't feel to me like a carbon market is the mechanism that would keep forests in place. But that aside, uh, Amazon did say that they're going to invest in track better tracking, too. So this is very much on the minds of these companies. Right. Yeah. And I would like to make a second shout out to Stripe, who I think is doing this the right way, which is they made their commitment. They then issued a call for projects. And then they just, in announcing their first four projects, they made everything transparent. They told you not only which projects they are funding, they told you the price per ton that they are paying for each project. And they published all the proposals for all the projects that they got. So there, you can just go online and see all the different options that they received for negative emissions, the four that they picked and the price per ton that they're paying for those four. It's, it's like a level of transparency that I've not seen elsewhere. I love it. I think it's such a great idea. Yeah. I mean, kudos to them. It's, it's truly the next step and expanding solutions and better tracking. Yeah. Can I make one more point about this in general, which is that Interestingly, I think, you know, though we're calling this all carbon offsets, I think that term is dying. Like mm. if you look at what Microsoft and Amazon and Stripe and all these companies are talking about, I don't think any of them are talking about carbon offsets. What are and they saying? They're saying that they are funding projects that will reduce emissions or that they themselves will become net zero emissions or emissions negative, carbon negative as a result. But I don't think they're saying we're offsetting our emissions as much. The term carbon offsets, I think it harkens back to indulgences in the church, which I think is what makes people react negatively to it. But if you think of it as um, we're going to fund projects that will reduce emissions, and we will do so to balance out our own emissions, which is effectively what carbon offsets are, but by another name, it somehow it comes across better. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what terminology all these folks settle on to the extent that they do 
But I don't think it's going to be carbon offsets. Well, certainly offsets connotates that like I'll do whatever I want and uh, I'll just offset those emissions later, which again is the reason why people compare them to indulgences. Right. The, the other thing is like some of these are not, they're not actually creating markets necessarily, right? right? Like a market implies tradable goods and what's happening here is like a bi-directional transaction between a buyer and a seller where there's no trading apart from that. So we're not, it's not, you know, it's not like Stripe is buying $700 a ton direct air capture carbon credits and then selling those credits to some third party. Stripe is retiring them effectively. Okay, well, coming up, I want to talk about is this time different? First, a word about our sponsors, the folks who help bring you this show for free. We are brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma helps developers, municipalities, and commercial and industrial customers reduce energy demand charges, generate income, increase grid reliability, and meet their sustainability goals. That is because Prisma has a five-year lease offering for energy storage that reduces transaction costs and allows customers to benefit without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of storage ownerships. Prisma has relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the battery storage industry, and they'll customize lease solutions to fit customers' needs. There's no designer technology risks, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are reduced to a minimum, especially compared to a purchase. Visit prismaenergy.com to learn more. The interchange is also brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. With 72 gigawatts of power plant capacity in 180 countries around the world, Vertzilla offers flexible power plants, energy storage, and life cycle services that ensure increased efficiency and guaranteed performance. Based on the modeling of 145 countries and regions worldwide, Vertzilla's team was able to find the cost-optimal energy mix for a 100% renewable energy system in all regions. It is known as the Atlas of 100% renewable energy. And you can get your hands on this. Uh, it shows the role that different tech will have in power systems, how it's all going to work together. And the goal of this atlas is to help customers choose future-proof systems that's going to optimize operational costs of their power systems. So go download it and see your optimal path at vertsilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A dot com slash atlas or find it right there in the show note links. Okay, Shale, is this time different? What needs to happen to make sure that the disillusionment doesn't set in once again? Well, I think, so as, as I said before, in my mind, transparency and trust are going to be the make or break deciders of whether this market has any real legs. There's a separate question we should also talk about, which is demand. Um, but before we get there, in order to ensure trust, I think there are four characteristics that these new offset providers, minters, um, and buyers need to ensure. And they all relate to exactly the problems that you were describing at the beginning in the first wave. The first one is that when you mint a credit, it needs to not ever be double counted and that needs to be certain. In other words, if I plant a tree um, and I sell some, you know, CO2 avoidance credit from it, I can only sell it once, I can't sell it twice. Um, the second is they need to be permanent. So as you said before, you know, if this, if I plant a tree and then that tree gets cut down soon afterwards, the carbon gets released in the atmosphere. Um, and so you, you have to ensure that it stays as staying power. 
The third is this term that is, has been the bane of um, carbon markets for a long time, which is additionality, which is basically the idea that my purchase of that credit enabled that project to happen. Were it not for my purchase of that credit, or if were it not for that credit existing, the project would not have happened. Because otherwise, your purchase of the credit has actually achieved nothing. This is one of the big issues, for example, for using um, renewable energy to generate carbon credits, which is you got to make the case that if I weren't going to buy this CO2 credit from that wind farm, the wind farm would never have been built, right? That's additionality. Well, that's a problem because that means that you can really only fund projects that are like right on the margin of profitability. Um, and the reality is that, that wind farm maybe was going to get built otherwise because these are good economic projects. And so maybe they shouldn't generate carbon offsets. So additionality is key. And the final one is monitoring and verification, which is just ensuring that, you know, I think it used to be that like you buy carbon credits and retire them and then forget about them. And you can't really do that because many of these things need to, to remain. This is the permanence point. So I think for buyers to get trust over the long term, you need to continue to monitor and verify the emissions reductions associated with any given credit and ensure that the customer knows and trusts that those, those projects um, remain in action. It feels to me like a handful of companies that are pushing this forward does not signify a broader trend. I remain a little bit skeptical here. And um, I wonder if we are identifying a trend that is not as big as it might seem. It's definitely an early trend. And, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about COVID, but I do think there's some meaningful risk that COVID sort of kills some of the momentum that was building. So I, I wouldn't say that it was a big wave of this yet. I think there's enough action to suggest that it has been a wave um, and that there was a possibility that it was going to continue to grow and eventually crest at some high high level. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know yet what, what impact COVID is going to have on, again, this is a voluntary market. So what is it going to mean for individuals who care about their carbon footprint? What is it going to mean for businesses who were making commitments to going net zero carbon or net negative carbon? Yeah, well, clearly the pandemic is not going to be very good for this market for consumer demand. When people are not flying or commuting, they're just not going to be buying offsets at the same volumes. So we have no idea what the numbers look like, but I can imagine that they're going to be pretty terrible. The corporate side, which makes up most of the carbon reduction purchases could stay strong for all we know. I mean, there's clearly demand for this. These corporate targets aren't going away. So, and and a lot of the leading commitments that we've seen from companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Stripe are long-term commitments that will not be changed by the, the current economic climate. I think, well, first of all, on the individual consumer side, it's definitely true that, you know, we are broadly emitting less and so we would have less to offset particularly from travel related emissions i do think that's a separate question from will there still be demand from from consumers to offset portions of what they do still emit and and potentially new avenues through which to do it so shopify would be the good example of that and we've talked before about the sort of point of sale carbon transparency i mean that's a whole new emerging world where like maybe I won't have flights to offset, but I tell you, I sure do have online purchases. <laughs> uh, in fact, I have more of them than ever. So I think the more salient question for the sort of medium term for the consumer side is not what impact will COVID 
have on our daily emissions and thus how much we can offset, but like, is there demand at scale from consumers to offset their personal emissions? And then on the corporate side, this is a big question for me, which is, I do think that the companies that have already made these commitments, the Microsofts and Stripes and all these companies, they're going to follow through with them. They also have the luxury of being able to follow through with them because they have a lot of money. The question is, was there a next wave of companies that were maybe not the earliest adopters, but the early majority of large corporates that were you know, gearing up to make these big commitments or these big purchases, and will COVID slow them down in that effort? And my suspicion, unfortunately, is that, yes, we will see fewer new commitments than we would have seen historically, even if the existing commitments still get fulfilled. The final thing that I worry about is that companies will start to lean on these reductions in place of reducing you know, their own internal emissions. So I found this report from the Stockholm Environment Institute and the GHG Management Institute about how to effectively use offsets. And they categorize all the things that companies should be doing. And carbon offsets are the last thing. Right. I mean, you have to first inventory your greenhouse gas emissions, which is really difficult. And then you want to develop like internal reduction strategies for employees and for your own supply chains. And then you want to go deeper and work with your with suppliers who have lower greenhouse gas supply chains um, that you can verify. I mean, that's really difficult stuff to do. But big companies are are doing that, like Walmart, for example. Um, the only after you've done that, do you go out and buy offsets to cover any remaining greenhouse gas reductions that you might need to cover? And so I, I just want to make it clear that the experts say that this is kind of a last resort thing to do before you've done all these other internal strategies. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, yeah, you could frame it as last resort or you could frame it as like, this is what you do once you have made serious strides in the direction of reducing your direct emissions or even your indirect emissions. Um, via other means. And I think the companies that are, you know, in the new carbon market landscape would probably say the same thing. Yeah, I think a company like Microsoft would definitely say that. But a company like Amazon might not. I mean, Amazon has really been behind on this. And I mean, Amazon just made that big climate pledge, um, which was prior to uh, the announcement about all the forestry that they're funding. And that, I mean, so Amazon, I'm sure is behind many other companies, but they have separately made their own, you know, pretty significant climate pledge. Well, the forestry piece was the first announcement as part of that climate pledge. Well, I mean, it depends how you define it. So when you're announcing that you're going to be protecting forests in the Northeast as your big investment. What about... uh, I don't know. That's not a great... What about making the largest order of electric delivery vans in the world and investing in Rivian uh, directly as well? Right. Definitely. Right. They use plug power fuel cell forklifts in their facilities. I'm not saying that they're like there already, but I mean, I think, I think Amazon is both pursuing direct reductions itself and funding forestry as well, which I think most of these companies that are doing it probably are because they're sensitive from a PR standpoint, if nothing else, to the idea that they would just be offsetting and and that's it. I'm sorry. Amazon has no excuse. I mean, if they're going to be relying on deforestation credits as their big splash as part of their climate announcement. I'm just saying, I don't think that's what they're doing. They have a lot of work to do. this is one amongst a string of announcements that they have made and will be making. Yeah. Agreed. Um, So are you bullish? I think I was getting to be pretty bullish prior to the pandemic, and now I'm on the fence. Um, I'm I'm excited because 
as we've been talking about, this is a market I've been paying a lot of attention to for a long time. I've always seen the problems with it. These were real problems the first time around. And there was a lot of vaporware that was sold um, to individuals and businesses that were trying to do the right thing. And I think that technology is solving that. I do believe that. I believe that we can um, generate and mint and purchase and retire carbon credits that will actually reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere and that there is a deep well of potential demand for doing so because I also believe that there is a lot of organizations and individuals who have the means and do care about reducing emissions overall and mitigating climate change. So that all does make me pretty bullish. I'm a little nervous about the impact that COVID is going to have and just that the market was just starting to take off and this happened makes it you know, a tough environment for, I think, the next couple of years. But on balance, I would say I am still more bullish than I am bearish. Well, if all else fails, there's always blockchain, right? <laughs> I just threw my little blockchain note in there. But, you know, it is one of the early applications of blockchain that has been more successful than others in the energy industry has been um, to ensure no double counting. It's been used a lot in the renewable energy credit markets, but why not in the carbon markets? Hmm. Shale Khan, thanks for flexing your carbon markets obsession and expertise with us. I can't believe it took us this long. <laughs> Shale Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Hit us up on Twitter to suggest show ideas or respond to this show. Give us a rating and review anywhere you get the podcast. It's super helpful. And uh, we'll catch you next week. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. <laughs>